and welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name's Patrick. And I'm Steve. And what are we talking about today, Steve? Today we are talking about the music of Sunstop, a company that's highly regarded today for their excellent video game music from around the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, that's right. They are probably most well-known for making Blaster Master, Fester's Quest, and Batman for the NES. Uh, but amongst fans of video game music, they also have a lot of recognition for some lesser-known titles, like uh, Journey to Silius, Mr. Gimmick, and Albert Odyssey. And uh, this episode is coming a week late. Sorry about that, everyone. Uh, I came down with strep throat. Uh, Oof, I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm still recovering from it, you know, um, mm-hmm. but I'm able to talk now without being like in horrible pain. So, uh, yeah, so that's, you know, definitely an improvement over the last couple of days. So absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so we had to delay this a bit, but I, you know, I'm very stoked about the episode we have prepared for you guys today. So, uh, yeah, this is going to be cool. It's going to be awesome. Okay, so uh, so f- just in case the listeners don't know much about Sunsoft's background, uh, Steve, like, how did they get their start? Well, they started in 1971 as Sun Electronics, uh, a subsidiary of Sun Corporation. Uh, they're also known as Sun Denchi uh, Corporation in Japan. Yeah, and uh, their first video game was released in 1978. Uh, it was called GT Block Challenger for the arcade. Or at least there's a bit of discrepancy. Uh, yeah, on... there seems to be a couple different titles for that, but Block Challenger seems to be the one we were able to right. find, I think. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and after the success of some of their early 80s ar- arcade games like Arabian and Route 16, uh, they transitioned primarily to developing um, for the Famicom and NES You know, throughout the mid to late uh, 80s. Yeah, and then for following there, the late 80s and early 90s, they started to go onto other platforms like the TurboGrafx-16 or the PC Engine and the Mega Drive slash Genesis. Though by the early 90s, they primarily switched to working for the Super Famicom uh, with a few Game Boy and Game Boy Colors sprinkled throughout. Yeah, and though Sunsoft saw the release of some games on later platforms like the Sega Saturn and PlayStation, uh, they hit a sharp decline in 1995. Uh, and the reason for this, I didn't know this before mm-hmm. going to record the episode, because like they made some great games and then they, they kind of like disappeared off the map. Yeah. Um, so according to a former producer and director um, of some of their games, uh, Sun Corporation had lost millions on some golf course investment. <laughs> uh, so that's like what put an end to their steady output of games. Jeez. Um, yeah. So it's to think about like how you have this parent company that made some bad investment. Uh, and you have the game developers doing doing their own stuff unrelated to that, and uh, mm-hmm. they they were putting out some great content, and then they got you know hit hard by something that was completely out of their hands. So it's pretty unfortunate. I think it's kind of similar to the the situation that Sega has right now with Sammy, and like you know it's kind of, they're related, but it's kind of unrelated. So if something happened to Sammy, Sega would be in a little bit of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of like Sammy's more involved with like pachinko machines. I know it's kind of a merger, but like if one side or the other side kind of pulled them down, obviously they'd be in a lot of trouble. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you know, yeah, Sunsoft. I think they're well regarded as being one of the companies that has you know amazing video game music, particularly on the NES. You know, you think about like the best companies out there in terms mm-hmm. of quality video game music for the NES. You think, you know, first party Nintendo, you think mm-hmm. uh, Konami, you think Capcom, and mm-hmm. Sunsoft is definitely up there as well. They're not as quite, a, you know, quite as big of a name and didn't have quite as many games mm-hmm. as those other companies. But um, like their final stretch of games is just, it's, they all have incredible soundtracks. I think it's interesting because I think that they had more, like as we were kind of putting this together, I think they had more for Famicom and, you know, just just the console in general than I thought they had. 
And I think that that's something when we kind of start to talk about all this that we're going to find out because it's kind of interesting how how many there actually are and how many we never even heard of when, when we were putting this together. Yeah, especially during their earlier years. There's a giant mm-hmm. you know giant batch of games I had no idea existed. So yeah. And so to explore the music of Sunsoft, I thought it'd make the most sense to sort of break down their library of games into these sort of different uh, eras. Um, So they have these early years where the music isn't as involved or interesting as their later stuff. But then there's this sort of second wave of games uh, from the late 80s where you see a sharp improvement in their quality. Uh, Then the early 90s has this sort of golden era for their NES music. And then after that, you have some cool 16-bit stuff as well. Yeah, and I mean, the, the boundaries between these different eras are somewhat arbitrary and don't always have a clean division, but I think uh, they make sense when viewed from the perspective of the quality of audios in their in their games, kind of like the evolution of them, Yeah, and also considering the platforms they were coming out on. And uh, something we should point out, uh, Sunsoft was also a game publisher, so there's a de- decent amount of stuff out there with the name Sunsoft on it uh, that we're not really going to be talking about, uh, since our focus is on the music they made. Uh, the soundtracks made by other developers don't really fit into this discussion about like uh, the evolution of their audio. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, uh, games that would include that, like I always remember when I used to play like Lemmings. Lemmings had the Sunsoft thing, but it's obviously not by them. Uh, and another great example uh, would probably be Pirates of the Dark Water for Super uh, Nintendo. So, yeah, that, that's a good soundtrack, but, you know, it has really nothing to do with Sunsoft. It was composed by Rick Fox, who was an American composer, who also did non-Sunsoft games, like Air of the Acrobat and the original Torak on N64. So sometimes when you see Sunsoft collaborating with developers outside their main team, and even though it's sometimes really, really good, it, it, it doesn't feel quite like part of the Sunsoft puzzle, if that makes any sense. Right. Oh, definitely. I agree. So, mm-hmm. uh, So let's get started with the early years of Sunsoft. So as we mentioned in the introduction, they released their first game in 1978. It was called uh, GT Block Challenger. And I had a little trouble finding out like the exact timeline on this. I mean, they had a couple mm-hmm. titles, Block Perfect uh, and Galaxy Force, not to be um, mistaken with the Sega arcade game Galaxy yeah, Force. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, apparently they had another game in 1979 also called Runway. Um, but I can like barely find any information on these games other than like some low-res uh, scanned ads for Block Challenger. Uh, and uh, Runaway. So, um, yeah, I don't know. There's no YouTube videos. There's, like, no pictures of these cabinets coming up in Google search. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't Like, these things are, like, barely documented. Like, they almost don't exist. It's interesting because, like, I, I assume they didn't exist. Uh, I, I kind of did a dive, and then I think me and Patrick kind of put together some of some pages and different pictures of whatever we could find. And th- there's just <laughs> there's yeah. just really nothing. It's really quite bizarre. Yeah. Um, and also, like, the whole Galaxy Force thing, actually calling it Galaxy Force when... Uh, how did Sega... You know what I mean? Like, if Sega Yo, that makes it, it Galaxy... impossible to search for, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's... It, it's very strange. Uh, th- that whole part of it seems to be, like, either very few were made um, or, you know, like, because there's very little information on that. I, like, you'd assume that if something is... Like, in other words, if you look up Sunsoft and if you look up their very first games, it seems like everyone cut and paste 
you know, their yeah. first games were GT Block Challenger, also known as Block Perfect or Galaxy Force, from one source that we can't find that I've never heard of. Right. Um, so it, it like I guess we have to just assume that this is true. Yeah. Well, uh, they did yeah. have there are ads you can find for some of them, but they don't mm-hmm. they have like a different name. So I see like some of the sites assuming like, oh, this other name must have been like a different name for Sunsoft at the time. Yeah. So it's like, oh, I wonder if that's even right, though. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, like, the, like the best I can find, the most I can find for these games are, is like a listing of arcade games that haven't been ripped for uh, emulation and MAME mm-hmm. yet. And these are in there. Um, oh, wow. But like some of those listings, like they'll have a lot more information about the games that are, uh, you know, not ripped yet for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But then these games get there and it's just like a list of their names and says nothing else about them. So it's like, hmm. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and if anyone can translate the ads i'll link to them in the show notes the ones that i found uh that'd be cool because it'd be cool to see if they had anything to say more specifically uh you know if these things even had audio at all um because mm-hmm. it looks like the ads make the first couple games look like these like tabletop type arcade games like ones you yeah. s- sit down at kind of like that miss pac-man type arcade tabletop mm-hmm. thing but uh but like super low res like green raster graphics or whatever you call it like you know this is early arcade stuff of course so yeah absolutely but, you know, moving on, uh, kind of getting into the 80s here, they had some other arcade games that were more popular. Uh, that would include games like Route 16, Arabian, and Kangaroo. Yeah, and uh, being early arcade titles, though, their audio isn't very impressive in retrospect. You know, I'm sure these sounds were serviceable at the time, uh, but now it's, it's too primitive to be of interest, I think. Yeah, it, I mean, a lot of these, and I guess a lot of the consoles at the time, were using AY-3.8910 derivative chips, basically. That would basically be, uh, for all intents and purposes, you know, the, uh, just a programmable sound generator, three square and one uh, you know, noise channel, very similar to the Master System, which is really funny because the Master System was still going on in the 90s and had a chip that you could pretty much put in your systems in like 81. Um, right. You know, just kind of digging at the Master System again. I love it, but, you know, the audio is kind of primitive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, there wasn't much to work with. It's very clear that these games use the, the PSG to kind of make the melody and everything else is just kind of sound effects. Right. Um, you know, they use it, it had a really crisp kind of sound uh, that you could get at the noise channel, but it's very clear that it, it was just used for sound effects. Yeah. Um, and more on that in a little bit. So. So you would at least expect that when Sunsoft started developing games for the Famicom in 1985, they finally had access to a more robust sound set with more voices available. Right. oh man yeah i I mean okay so that was music from the first famicom game super arabian which mostly consists of one voice music like that uh there is one track that uses two voices though there's basically no progression from the arcade audio in that example um as you're about to see though sunsoft takes little baby steps with sound capabilities of the famicom the second Famicom game, Route 16 Turbo, uh, had all tracks using at least two melodic voices. In a couple of cases, the triangle uh, wave was actually used for the third voice. Uh, we're still missing the noise channel, though. 
like it is used for sound effects in route 16 turbo but the music yeah. the music still feels very bare bones without any percussion in it it's not until their fifth famicom game tokaido goju san suji uh that the noise channel is used musically and even then it's only done uh very briefly in one track So it's just this one little type percussive sound. It's they're really not doing much with it yet. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, okay. So this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's uh, probably worth mentioning that some of these games are considered to be very good. <laughs> right. Like these games are looked down on pretty harshly. Um, the first Famicom game, Super Arabian, was described by Crontendo uh, as being possibly the worst Famicom game uh, at the time of its release. And for most of the subsequent games in like these early years, uh, he basically dismisses a lot of their titles as shovelware. Yeah, I mean, and this is this was actually described, or there's like a word for it in Japanese, which is kind of interesting. And the word is kusoke, which literally means crap game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, so, <laughs> um, and it's funny, it's like uh, we, we know plenty of games that are, you know, even in our lexicon. Like, so you know you have a fun word to use to describe them. Yeah. Um, there's plenty that are like crappy, but... There are just like I mean I I did you watch any gameplay of Arabia, of Super Arabian? Oh yeah, in fact, something I'll link in the show notes is I made mm-hmm. my own, like preparing for this episode. I made like a chronological list of almost every game that Sunsoft developed. Mm-hmm. It gets a little loose to the end, so like I wasn't planning on sharing it publicly, but I still will because I actually included uh, included links to every Crontendo video uh, mm-hmm. for like all their early chunk of games. So uh, you know you can go through and watch like. Um, if you want to see like the progression of games, uh, I linked out like video documentation of like every game listed out in order. So, so I, I'm guessing that you did see the Crontendo thing about Super Arabian. Yeah, I mean the the game itself, like it doesn't like I, I don't know, and I, I, maybe you have this opinion about some of these early games. They don't actually look bad. Like, it, does that make any sense? Like, I I, lo- I watched a lot of them. They kind of look a little primitive, but they, they're not like. A horrible yeah, they're graphics not, wise. They're not like, they're not like action fifty two bad. Uh yeah. They're just I think it's easier to judge them more harshly just because they're not great, like later Sunsoft titles. Mm-hmm. Um and that they play poorly. I mean that's the biggest reoccurring thing that like they don't have good controls, so they're just fundamentally not fun compared to like other early arcade style Famicom games. So I mean, yeah, the the quality of these games is very strange. And like like I said, the graphics were interesting, but like what a bunch of weird games man like yeah. there are some these games are really weird like so the the, the example uh we just played or, or we played a bit ago that uh, takaido uh, goju-san uh, uh suji game or whatever yeah they, it actually translates to firework thrower kentaro's 53 stations at the tokaido where yeah. you throw bombs at enemies and there's like ninjas and like yeah. I, I watched some videos of it, it, it it's completely perplexing and like one of these other games i can't remember which one because i was watching a bunch of videos for it but you're like a farmer and you throw sickles people like you know because like there's people invading your farm or like there's just like really weird themes and a lot of them are just kind of like i guess quintessentially japanese yeah um you know defending your farm like there's period games like you know japanese from like you know the the lore of the you know the warring states kind of and i think it's just really uh, the concepts are just bizarre. Like, yeah, and there, there's also a whole batch of, like, edutainment games. Um, oh, yeah. There's one mm-hmm. game that looks kind of like a Zelda clone. Like, if Zelda took place only in a dungeon, and you had to solve <laughs> math problems after you clear out the room of enemies. Um, yeah, there's stuff like that crammed in there, too. So, it's like, uh, you, you just got a, a lot of, like... 
The uh, you were talking about the graphics before. I think the way it sort of goes is you have these games that kind of look okay a lot of times, uh, but if they're an action game, they don't have good controls. Or if they are more m- mechanically competent, they're mm-hmm. probably some kind of edutainment game uh, that's just not fun. I mean, and like I, the the need for entertainment games on the Famicom, like I'm just trying to think of what else is out there in 85, 86. So you have all the different kinds of, so I guess the MSX is here, the SC3000 is here, like different computing systems. So you're trying to compete against, I guess, some of that software, the entertainment software that would be on 8-bit computers. Uh, well, according to Tendo, he thinks that um, Sunsoft might have created the first console uh, like quiz game. Mm-hmm. That's amongst uh, you know this batch of games, so uh, I guess they have that going for them. Like I, I think you are you're right. They are trying to compete with some of that, and they actually, um, you know, even though the, some of these games aren't great, uh, they might be like the first examples of their genre actually in some cases. So uh, on the console at least. Yeah. No. I like. I don't know if you looked. Did you look at? Um, or, well, I guess you watched a lot of these videos because we linked them obviously here. But Route 16 Turbo is a very interesting game. Like you're driving around in a car collecting money. Yeah, and it's like, a weird, like, it has, like, an overworld map where you're still physically in control of the moment, like, yeah. in control of the movement of the car, where it's, like, you're one pixel, and there's all these bigger boxes of rooms you can go into, and it mm-hmm. seamlessly, like, you enter one of those boxes, and then it blows up to, like, full screen mode, like, you know, zoomed in mode, where it's, like, top down, you're driving the car around the room, and then you get whatever you need in the room, you exit it, and you're back to the map, and then, like, have to drive into another room. So it's, like, this weird nonlinear, like, get everything from all the rooms kind of thing. It looked it looked somewhat fun, but maybe it isn't. Like I don't know. Like I, it's, I I'm sure the arcade game probably played better than the Famicom game. Oh, and that game too, by the way. I just want to bring it up. Like you know, there's like a, there's always this like example of like oh you know, and I maybe perhaps a touchy subject, but the idea of like uh, in uh, Japanese games or Japanese culture that what we would consider the swastika is not something that's a bad symbol. Route 16 Turbo is that famous game that has the swastikas in it. The one swastika room. Is, like, room. The swastika yeah, there's room. one room full yeah. of swastikas, and it's like what yeah. the hell. And that's like, you know, like it's used as an example, like when people put together those like feeds of, oh, surprising things in Famicom game. That's that's where that comes from. That right. one particular thing. I'll link a picture of it here. Yeah. yeah or maybe not link a picture. Maybe that's not a good idea. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So uh, getting back on track here, they did have one early game that actually looks pretty cool. Uh, it's called Dead Zone, and it was their sixth Famicom game and more specifically their first Famicom disk system game. Uh, it's an adventure game that looks like it might be decent. But it's in Japanese and hasn't had a fan translation uh, made for it. Dead Zone also shows Sunsoft's first serious experimentation with Famicom's audio because it utilized, and this is surprising, it had 7-bit audio samples in it, actually. So this is a pretty interesting use of the sample channel. Uh, Sunsoft is known later on for clever use of the sample channel in their music, uh, but the first foray into it has them jumping straight into streaming higher quality samples uh, instead of using the standard 1-bit DPCM samples. Yeah, and the floppy disk format, if you remember when we talked about the uh, the Famicom disk system, um, allowed for more space in the early Famicom cartridges. The early ones, remember, eventually yeah. catches up. But So they were likely taking advantage of this. I guess this is, what, 86, 87? Yeah, yeah, this is 1986 still, yeah. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the sound design uh, and the music isn't very advanced yet still, uh, but you actually can see progress being made. Remember that the previous game was the first to use noise musically, uh, but it was just one simple staccato drum. 
Uh, in Dead Zone, there's a track that has the swelling volume in the noise channel, so it's like there's finally a little bit more going on. The next Famicom Disk System game, Adian no Sue, uh, uses the triangle wave and the extra FDS wavetable voice at the same time in a couple of tracks with the noise as well. So you can see them trying to flesh out the sound. Um, actually, and plus one, uh, this one track in particular that uses a neat kind of weird sounding voice from the wavetable channel. So this is sort of how it plays out with the next batch of games. The regular Famicom games don't progress too much in terms of audio, but some of the FDS games get a tighter grasp of the wavetable channel. So you can generally expect their FDS games to have much better audio and music. Uh, Superboy Allen, which was their 11th Famicom game, or their 5th floppy disk uh, system game more specifically, uh, has a pretty neat track that uses all the voices uh, aside from the sample channel. Um, but it has uh, sections where it withholds the second square wave starting off with just the first square wave doing almost like a primitive echo effect by like attacking twice. Um, so this might be the first example of them doing an effect like that. And it shows them uh, putting more consideration into the sound design. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they are purposely, they have the one channel doing an effect that you might normally use two channels for, then layering a second channel afterwards to give it a bigger sound. Uh, let's give it a listen. I feel like that's actually like the first uh, piece of like actually good music we've played in the episode so far. Yeah, I think so. That's it's really starting to sound like what we expect from Sunsoft. I think uh, in that. Yeah, it's it's getting there. Like you said earlier, uh, baby steps. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um. So I wanted to take a quick look at the last soundtrack. Uh, I've decided marks the end of their early years. Uh, it's called Nozaler Land Die Three Go. Uh, it's the last of their edutainment series for the Famicom Disk System, and also the last of their Famicom exclusive titles. Like a lot of the early soundtracks, there isn't a lot of content there, uh, but what is there shows a serious step up in the sound design.
So the first thing uh, that stands out is how they're making the uh, percussion more complex. Uh, They've included a downward pitch in the triangle channel that make it sound like a tom. That's very similar to, I guess, what Capcom does, you know, the the Capcom-like kind of triangle tom, Um, which is ironic because this comes out in 87, and the original Mega Man also comes out in 87. So, you know, kind of a parallel between development of sound, which is interesting. I wonder if that has anything, you know, cross-pollination, someone told someone, or or they heard it, or someone heard it, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, anyway, getting back to the track itself, the noise channel also kind of uses the uh, the secondary loop noise mode, which is kind of interesting. We haven't uh, heard much of that to this point, uh, and it get you know the secondary loop noise gets that metallic buzzy sound. Yeah, and I think that track's really cool because they're treating it like a sort of sound demo in a way. Because mm-hmm. like the end of every phrase has a new sound effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, it sounds like a whistle, then it sounds like a bird chirping, uh, then maybe a keyboard of some kind. Then there's a set of toms. Then, like, a laser gun. And then, like, whatever the heck that last sound effect is. (laughs) This shows that the sound designer, Takeuchi Akito, uh, had to have been actively considering how playing around with pitch bends uh, in the available duty cycles could create distinct and relatable sounds. So, again, this is a huge step up from the earlier soundtracks that don't have any kind of detail like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, since we brought him up, I, I guess it's worth mentioning the people who are involved in this era. Yeah. So as you mentioned, uh, Takeuchi Akito is the, lead, is the lead sound designer for these Sunsoft titles. He's credited on every Famicom title of theirs so far up to this point, which is about 87, 88. Yeah, and we couldn't find much info on him, um, but according to the Video Game Music Preservation Foundation wiki, uh, he developed their Famicom and FTS sound drivers. Uh, you know, which would make sense since he seems to be there from the start. Yeah, absolutely. And he, I guess, like, so then if we have the sound designer, the programmer, who was the person actually writing the music, the person writing the music was Naoki uh, Kodaka, mm-hmm. uh, who is credited in working on most of their Famicom titles, like almost all of them, actually. Yeah. And um, so Steve found an excellent interview with uh, Kodaka on Shmupulations. Uh We'll link that here in the show notes. Uh, but a quick rundown of his history is that he was a music major in college. Uh, having studied classical and modern music. And before working with Sunsoft, he was producing commercial music for TV and radio. He was introduced to Sundeshi Corporation by someone in college who knew that Kodaka was not only a composer, but also a fan of video games. Uh, The way he was introduced was essentially, I know this young composer who plays at the Game Center all day. (laughs) (laughs) So Smopulations describes how Kodaka worked with sound programmers to make the music he wanted. There's a great segment here, so we'll just quote the whole thing. Uh, And this is his words. As a composer at Sunsoft, I always work together with the team. I'd write my songs on sheet music at home and hand them over to the sound team at work. And depending on the circumstances, I might attach a demo tape too. Once the technology got to the point where they, we could do a little more with the music, I'd also listen to the sounds they selected and give them feedback. This should feel looser, or this part needs to sing out more, steadily working uh, each song into a finished state. Um, Kodaka also had praise for the sound programmer's contributions. Uh, he says he thought of them less as uh, engineers and more as performers uh, who used the computer as an instrument. Yeah, uh, Kodaka uh, elaborated on this saying, and again, these are his words. Um, the people working on the sound team at Sunsoft were all incredibly talented. They were a real group of pros, not because everyone was so chummy, but in the way they inspired and challenged each other. They had it all, creativity, tenacity, great theoretical knowledge and flexibility. Amazingly, there were also several very gifted sound programmers working at Sunsoft then, too. They loved music and had a good sense for it, while having a passion for the hardware side. 
They trusted me as a composer, and I trusted them. The Sunsoft sound team also developed many programming techniques in order to go beyond the limitations of the sound hardware. As a composer, I'd have some idea I was dying to try out, and the sound programmers would apply all sorts of tricks to solve the puzzle I had presented. This kind of thing happened all the time. It was an unforgettable time in my life as a creator. Yeah, these are great quotes that like provide a lot of insight uh, uh, as to what was happening at uh, Sunsoft at the time, as far as their music and sound design goes. And uh, there, we'll link to the this interview in the show notes, and we'll also come back to it uh, later on because there's more uh, good information. Yeah, in there. there's so much in there; it's awesome. Uh, and so, someone else we see introduced towards the end of this era is Naruhisa Morota. Uh, he's another sound programmer for Sunsoft. Uh, 1987, he worked on two Sunsoft titles. Uh, the port of Fantasy Zone, and the puzzle game uh, called Shanghai. Uh, later on, he's apparently the one who came up with the bass samples uh, used in their later NES soundtracks. Yeah, which is, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and kind of speaking of which, we sort of skipped over their Famicom version of Fantasy Zone, but it's worth bringing it up. Not only is it now he says Marota's entrance into Sunsoft, the Sunsoft library, but it's also one of those upward swings of quality. Uh, the game came out four titles earlier than uh, the Zoller Land Die 3 Go example we closed out with, but um, let's give a listen to some of the music from it. I like how that track opens with both uh, pulse wave channels being used a bit unconventionally. Uh, you have one doing these lower pitch bends to create a sound like a tom, and the other one is doing these high-pitched, bleepy sounds that are also like a percussive effect. Um, so I think this makes Fantasy Zone and Nazolar Land Die 3 go uh, their two standout soundtracks from their earlier years. Yeah, I would absolutely. I, I would say so. They're definitely, you can kind of see the evolution of quality getting toward uh, some kind of apex that that you know that's going to lead to like the next area. Um, yeah. So speaking of which, we should probably move on to the next area, or the, as you defined it, which would be their uh, games from the late '80s leading into the early '90s. So we see a few things from the late 80s that we think distinguish it uh, as its own era for Sunsoft. The first is that we see their audio team expand. As we said before, almost every title leading up to now is a collaboration between Akito Takeuchi uh, and Naoki Kodaka, uh, with a couple entries from Naohisa Morota. But in the next batch of games, we're going to start to see more names credited, like Masashi Kakiyama, Nobuyuki Hara, and uh, Shinichi Seiya. Uh, another thing that distinguishes their next wave of titles is how they were published. Every game so far has been a Famicom exclusive title, um, but now we're going to see Sunsoft having more of an international presence, uh, with titles finally coming out on both the NES and Famicom. Uh, there's even some games that are exclusive uh, to the NES and that didn't come out in Japan. So in some cases, they sort of like turn things around. 
Yeah, so uh, what we have marking the beginning of this era, uh, this this kind of new growth era, would be Freedom Force. And this is actually a, a light game, one of the rare Zapper games uh, for the NES. So uh, Freedom Force did also come out in Japan on one of those like versus arcade mm-hmm. cabinets. Uh, it's like that series of arcade units that are basically just Famicoms on the inside. Um, but it, it, you know, it not coming out for home console in Japan, but coming out for the American NES uh, certainly marks a change for Sunsoft. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't think there's too much to say about the music uh, in Freedom Force. It's pretty simplistic compared to some of the upcoming examples. Uh, it does make use of pitch bend uh, percussive sounds again, and so you can sort of see like a new bass level of quality for their audio. Um, like where this would be notable compared to their earlier soundtracks. Um, like, but now we can sort of take it for granted because it's just generally keeps going uphill uh, from here. Yes. Uh, so speaking of uphill, their next title is Cho Wakusei Senke Metafight, better known to us as Blaster Master. I think it's fair to say that Blaster Master is their best soundtrack released by this point. Um, the music has a lot of personality to it, and again, it uses that new bass line of quality with the percussive sounds it has, but also starts to get a bigger sound by using more echo effects. Uh, and though it's still not a huge soundtrack uh, in terms of the number of songs it has, it still has a lot more music than most of their earlier titles, uh, possibly even all of them, so it is very catchy too. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an uh, iconic track. Like, I think a lot of people would probably be able to recognize that track, even if they hadn't played the game. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it definitely is. Um, so there's there's more interesting stuff happening here as follows, as the volume envelopes go. The introduction track has an echo effect going on in two pulse wave channels, and the noise channel also has this, like, uh, stuttery effect, I guess, for percussion. And we also get this really cool track from the Lava Stage, uh, which has a lot of energy and drive to it in a way that like previous Sunsoft music didn't quite have. Mm-hmm. 
And like you just said before about having more interesting volume commands finally, um, it's not often that you hear a part fade out like that within a track. Like they have the melody fade out at the end of the loop there like you just heard. Um, which is interesting because it isn't a static fade. It's not like they had one melody that just got softer. It's like they had to dynamically reduce the volume of a part that already had other volume envelopes happening. So like, that's really cool. That's actually like getting pretty involved. Yeah, yeah. And like it definitely kind of evolving and kind of using more techniques. Like kind of like what Kodaka was saying. Like uh, I want some kind of tool that makes this sound or it needs to sound like this. Let's build this. So yeah. I feel like we're, we're getting to that point. And like as we mentioned in another episode, um, and this is kind of interesting, and you know we use this exact example, but there's a couple of tracks here that utilize a faster than usual engine refresh rate to get faster uh, to get like a faster modulated sound at the NES. This is a pretty rare sound design trick. Uh, there's not I can't even name any other examples I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, you don't find it commonly in other NES music, uh, so you can hear it at the end of this game over jingle. It's a cool effect because it makes a sort of new sound from the NES that isn't otherwise possible. Um, because that weird burpy sound is actually made by the triangle channel. Even though it's not really recognizable as the triangle. You know, like when it's rapidly shutting uh, on and off and playing new pitches like that. Here's what that effect sounds like when it's slowed down a lot. The sound effect also makes it into the cave theme, where it plays at the end of the loop. Uh, so not only is their music good now, uh, but it's probably worth mentioning that they're starting to make good games now as well. I mean, not all of the upcoming titles are uh, excellent by any means, but it's the good games are starting to trickle in. So um, I think that's something else that distinguishes the kind of titles we're starting to see here uh, in the late 80s. Yeah, I think that they're just starting to get more comfortable in the console realm, I, you know, because they kind of have, and it's weird to think it, but they kind of have a pedigree for arcade. And I think like, you know, the first few, few games were arcade ports with, you know, the word super or turbo attached to them, basically. Yeah. Um, so you're starting to see them do development. Like these teams have been together for a couple of years now. We're starting to get into kind of like the sweet spot for almost all the great games we love uh, from any company, you know, mm -hmm. like the very late 80s. So I think that everything's starting to really gel over there. And you can kind of see like they're figuring out mechanics. They're figuring out what's fun. They're not like producing that kind of like shovelware uh, you know, uh, God forbid they call it shovelware, but you know, right. like the idea of just kind of making a game to make money, which I feel like even that's kind of a way a lot of arcade company or arcade game companies operated. Yeah. Um, you know, like let's shovel a game out here or let's recolor Pac-Man to be a, you know what I mean? Something like that. There's so many clones. So I feel like they're starting to really realize that they can make money. And if, if they put a lot of money into these Famicom games, they're going to sell. Yeah. Uh, and that might be the big difference we're seeing here. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of Famicom and FDS uh, exclusive titles tucked in here after the release of Blaster Master. Um, for the first example, Mita Kamen 2, uh, I don't have much to say about the music, but it's worth pointing out that it's their one other game than Dead Zone to feature high-quality vocal audio. Uh, this time, there's quite a lot of it, though. Uh, I'm not sure how it compares to the Big Word game with all the talking samples, mm -hmm. uh, but I think this might be up there for the NES and Famicom games like in terms of what game put the most resources into dedicated speech samples. <laughs> Uh, 
And then after this, uh, we see their very last game for the Famicom Disk System, which will be uh, Nankendo Adventure. Yeah, that's a good use of the FTS channel, actually. You can hear the improvement in quality from their previous FDS stuff. I think this, alongside with Nazola Land 3 Daigao, uh, soundtrack we played earlier, easily marked their best two FDS soundtracks. Yeah, and, I'd say so. Yeah. And uh, it's no coincidence that their best two are their last two, because as we're demonstrating, they're getting better and better with the sound design uh, as they go. Yep. And uh, working alongside the usual team of Kodaka and Akito, we also see the first credit here for Nobuyuki Hara, another excellent Sunsoft composer we'll be seeing uh, more of in later soundtracks. So, yes, I guess with the end of the FDS, and we all we kind of covered the FDS in our episode, so you kind of know by the end of the, the you know, the, in the 80s, it's already kind of, it's, you know, it's kind of leaving, it's kind of not as important, and by early 90s, it's kind of gone. So we have the, we found this cool track from Nankino Adventure that we think would make a good swan song, you know, kind of like to close the book on Sunsoft's uh, FDS career. Um, so these two titles are, in turn, followed up by two NES exclusives, uh, Platoon and Xenophobe. Um, I wasn't particularly into these soundtracks beforehand, but looking up them up now in the context of Sunsoft's history, there are some neat things to point out. Yeah, definitely. Um, kind of looking through the NSF files here uh, for interesting, you know, just because we hadn't heard them or hadn't been, you know, too impressed with them. But we found that the ending theme of Platoon has these weird clicky sounds in it. So 
So I'm not entirely sure what's happening here, but I think I have a guess. Uh, I don't believe it's any weirdness with like faster engine refresh rate tricks. Um, so you know how when you do a vibrato on certain notes, you, you can get a clicky sound on the NES because uh, of like some overflow or some weird issue. We've talked about it in a previous episode. Yeah. Um, so and, like certain composers would avoid vibrato on certain notes to avoid that clicky sound. So I think what's happening here is that they're doing the exact opposite. Uh, they basically found that sort of bug in the sound and instead of avoiding it, decided to narrow in on it and do like a very tight vibrato right on the boundary of that trigger uh, to like basically spam it. Yeah, so they're basically taking something that other people tried to avoid and they're using it as like an instrument, you know, because they found a cool sound. So again, here we are, this whole team, these guys working together and, you know, their creativity is just kind of overflowing, you know. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And there's also a really cool sound at the beginning of the jungle uh, confrontation theme. Almost like a weird C64 kind of sounding instrument. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, the way that's made, it's it's basically a very fast trill between two half steps. Um, but the trill is a bit lopsided, where like the second note of the trill lasts three times as long as the first note. Uh, and even that note undergoes a slight vibrato effect, where it wavers like down, then back up in pitch during its three frames that it, that it plays. So uh, let's listen to that voice again, isolated. Uh, and here's what it sounds like slowed down. Now, things get shaken up a bit here after Platoon and Xenophobe. What's uh, something we think distinguishes Sunsoft's chunk of titles from the late 80s, we actually see them making games for some other platforms. Yeah, uh, March of 1989 sees the release of a game called Outlive, or Outlive, I'm not sure, uh, for the Turbo Graphics. Yeah, and seriously, this this has some awesome music. Yeah, that track is so good. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wow. 
So uh, Outlive uh, is the first Sunsoft soundtrack um, and the first soundtrack at all by composer Masaji uh, Kajayama. Um, for those that don't know that name, uh, he's a composer who doesn't have a particularly large library of works, um, but he's a very noteworthy composer uh, to Steve and I particularly. Yes, I mean, he's an awesome composer. Um, and he's a, I mean, I kind of know him, I've met him before. Um, and he's just a fantastic person too. And that's what's so great about him. Like his music and his personality, he's a, he's a warm, caring individual and, you know, his music kind of matches that. So he's just a great guy. Um, and in terms of how we know him, you know, I like know his music. He's also the composer for gimmick, um, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the episode. Uh, and I'm very excited to talk about later in the episode. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, and, um, the, um, sound design for out live, uh, is once again done by, Takeuchi Akito. Um, so Akito is sort of like, I, I think of him as like the frontiersman of Sunsoft mm-hmm. Audio, because um, he's often like the first person showing up to do stuff, like the sound design and the sound drivers. So, you know, he's, just, he's on yeah. board from the first Famicom game, and then here he is on the first TurboGrafx game as well. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that yet, because he is the first one here. So it's like, you know, here, <laughs> check out this new chip for this new software and do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like make it work. I want it to work. So yeah, he, he seems to be their go-to guy for that, which is pretty cool. So we'll go slightly out of order here to stay focused on the Turbo Graphics 16 slash PC Engine stuff for a bit, because between this and the next Turbo Graphics game is another NES game. So we're going to skip and go to the next game, which would be a Turbo Graphics game. We'll get back to the other one in a minute. Yeah. Uh, so next up is uh, Benki Gaiden, another 1989 Turbo Graphics Sunsoft game. Um, this one is composed by Masashi Kajiyama again, um, but also with Nobuyuki Hara. Moving into 1990 uh, and kind of still focusing on the Turbo Graphics uh, 16 slash PC Engine, uh, we see two more games. Uh, the first of which is City Hunter. Once again, it has some utterly uh, just some great tracks. They're so good. The sound design and like even the way that song is written uh, reminds me a lot of Metal Gear Two for the MSX. Oh yeah, yeah, it, it's it's it really has it's that so sound. Weird. Yeah, because like, I mean, like I guess we we haven't actually done an episode on the the PC Engine or the MSX, but 
just to say, you know, uh, for people who don't know, they, they have very similar setups in terms of what their sound capabilities are. Um, the TurboGrafx-16 is capable of multiple channels of wavetable synthesis, and so is the uh, MSX if you have the, uh, you know, the SCC chip in there. It's, we'll get it in yeah. future episodes, we'll get into it. But so the comparison here is, like, you know, the way that it's developed, it sounds more like it was written for the MSX. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's interesting because, like, We've looked all over the place, and I swear I've done everything I can try to do to figure out who the composer for this game is, and I have no clue. Um, right. <laughs> I really don't know. For City Hunter, it, there's like very little information about it, um, and I mean, I, I scoured like Japanese websites that have huge databases of like every composer that take like a screenshot of the credits. And I, I could not find the composer for this game. <laughs> yeah, so if you know, uh, and if you have any more information about who worked on City Hunter, who did the music for it, sound design, sound programming, uh, please leave a comment. Yeah, I mean, it, I'd really love to know. And you'd be doing us a great service because it's really nowhere on the internet. Um, so if we want to continue, Sunsoft did one last Turbo Graphics game, which would be Batman. Uh, well, wait a second, though. We have to go back. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, because we uh, skipped over some NES titles uh, in the meantime, you know, but there's something kind of important here that leads up to Batman for the Turbo Graphics. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Batman for NES was released before Batman for Turbo Graphics. No. Well, I mean, well, that, I mean, it was, but I'm, uh, I'm talking, <laughs> I'm talking uh, more specifically about Fester's Quest. That actually has, oh. that has a more meaningful tie-in here, actually. So um, this is the first NES game we mentioned before that came out between their two uh, first Turbo Graphics games. Uh, and I think Fester's Quest marks a very important uh, turning point for their NES music. track is just so ridiculous oh it's absolutely ridiculous um the, the whole premise of that game is un- unbelievably weird <laughs> oh yeah i never i played it a bit as a kid i never got very far and i don't remember it too well isn't it like flawed can't you like not get past a certain point i thought it was broken uh i'm not sure i know that it's not a well-liked game so yeah so while well, sunsoft had some impressive use of the sample channel before using all those vocal samples that we heard in dead zone and uh me to in two uh, this is where they start to take it seriously as an enhancement to the music. Yeah, like that previous track that we just played made some use of melodic orchestra hits. Uh, here's what they sound like isolated. This is noteworthy because there's not a whole lot of NES games that use the sample channel for additional melody. Um, most games just use samples for percussion, and most games in general don't use samples at all. Uh, we can name some other examples of melodic samples in NES games like Super C, Zombie Nation, B-52, Fire and Ice, The Immortal, Skater Die 2, um, but not much else. I mean, I just named everything I could think of. So, mm-hmm. uh, But these are sort of like disparate examples, though, uh, mostly done by different companies. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's like it, that whole list of 
uh, games, it's not like, you know, the same particular team or the same particular company. That's, I never really thought about it that way, that it's like Sunsoft does this and other companies have dabbled in it, if, if right. that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. And so, I mean, getting to that point, I guess Sunsoft has become, or, you know, in our mind, is a key figure in melodic use of sample channeling NES. Starting with Fester's Quest, it eventually winds up in a bunch more of their soundtracks. But before we get to them, let's hear how Fester's Quest sets up the stage for them. The use of sample bass in this Fester's Quest track hints at the kind of stuff that's going to come later. This track is so, so, so good. Let's see. And so after Fester's Quest, their next NES soundtrack is Batman, uh, which is another great soundtrack. And that's going to be the case from here on out. Uh, like all of their NES music now kicks ass, basically. So, mm-hmm. um, And while Batman has a sort of minor regression in that it doesn't use the sampled bass lines, uh, you know, it's the last of their NES soundtracks to not use them after Fester's Quest. Um, but that doesn't make Batman suffer as a result uh, because it's still really good. Definitely. And they ramp up a uh, sample percussion instead. So they're not ignoring the sample channel altogether. Um, you can still see how they want to uh, make sure it's well utilized. Uh, these are some of my like go-to Tom sounds that I like to steal. So, <laughs> so they're featured here in uh, this track here.
Yeah, I think we were talking about this before a bit off podcast, but this is like their bundle of games where they're all like based on movie licenses. I think that's like what Sunsoft was seeking out at the time. Um, and, you know, we've had this conversation before where like we tend to think of licensed games as usually not being very good. Um, but, uh, you know, just like a cheap thing that you can get customers to buy just because they have like a familiar title. But, um, you know, it, they actually put effort into these games and they put effort into the soundtracks. And I think it's really cool. Yeah, no, like, uh, in general, almost every licensed game I can think of, oh, there's some very few, there's a couple exceptions, obviously, but licensed games are usually the, 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 the shovelware. You know, that, like, I mean, if you think of a licensed game, it's usually like, movie came out, I'm going to make this game. You could probably interchange any of the characters and it wouldn't matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, based on that, you know, like, inter- moving those characters around and it not mattering, because uh, it's just, like, kind of loosely based on the plots of the movie, I can think of, like, some of the, like the Home Alone games, which don't even make any sense. Oh yeah, um, you know. Uh, so it just kind of moving with that. You don't expect them to be good, but they're still putting massive amounts of effort in here, and that's kind of something that you can commend them on. That these are two games that are kind of just based off movies and things that were coming out at the time, and they actually put their A team on here. They were trying to make great games, which is still awesome. Yeah, and uh, just a quick tangent here too. There, there was a prototype version of Batman that leaked. Uh, which has a couple cutscenes with unique music in them that didn't make it into the final game. Uh, so I'll put a link here in the show notes to a YouTube video uh, showing it. Yeah, I mean, there's so much great music in this game. <laughs> oh yeah. I guess I mean we can't we we have to keep moving I guess, but uh, there's so much great music in this game. Man. Yeah, yeah, because there's so many great soundtracks coming up that if we stop to talk about a lot of the tracks we like from each one, uh, the episode would be like really really long. So um, let's move forward and let's take a quick look at Batman for the Game Boy. This is, I believe, the uh, first Game Boy soundtrack that Sunsoft did, uh, and it's a pretty cool entry. And it has the same composers as the NES version, uh, Naiki Kodaka and Nobuyuki Hara. Um, though the Game Boy version is the first work uh, by Sunsoft where we see uh, a credit for the sound programmer Shinichi Seiya, um, so who sometimes goes by the alias of About SS. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, about SS. And you see that kind of pop up on other things too. It's like, what does that mean? Right. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, Shinichi Seiya. Yeah, yeah um, we'll be seeing more of their stuff coming up. 
So we talked about the other two Batmans. Can we talk about the Turbo Graphics one now? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Get, getting back to it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, okay. You know, it was released uh, for Turbo Graphics 16. You know, by Sunsoft, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the we- reason, I guess, that we had to do that tangent, uh, you know, uh, about the NES music that came in between, is because you hear the impact of Fester's Quest and how that's going to kind of change the way that Batman uh, for Turbo Graphics is going to sound. Yeah, the the sampled orchestra hits are back with a vengeance. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, even though the Batman Turbo Graphics uh, soundtrack is mostly an original soundtrack, and it's an original game too, it's not the same. It's not like the same game as the NES game. uh, It does include a cover of the NES uh, Stage One theme. Let's give that a listen. kind of moving past this there's some sega genesis stuff that's starting to also come out around this time um but for the sake of keeping the timeline kind of in a, a more i guess uh, organized manner um you know and so we don't have to go into that 16-bit stuff necessarily like not yet let's just kind of finish off the remaining 8-bit content from the 90s So to start off their final batch of NES soundtracks, uh, all of which use those one-bit bass samples, um, is the Incredible Journey to Cilia soundtrack, uh, also known as Raf World in Japan. And uh, listening to it again, uh, this might be my favorite video game soundtrack, like ever. It's that really? good. Yeah. Uh, at least, uh, certainly, it's in my it's short list of favorites. So this would be one of your. This would be on your short list, really. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I absolutely love Journey to Silius. Like, easily top video game soundtrack material for me. Oh, interesting. I mean, I don't, like, this soundtrack, I, maybe I'm not as, like, attached to it or something. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, I like it, but it's not like, uh, even in this, the, the Sunsoft stuff, it, I like it, but it's not, like, my favorite one. Oh, cool. Um, so, but it's just interesting. Um, I, I guess, like, this, there is kind of a reverence to, about this soundtrack and about this game in particular, right? Um, oh, yeah. It wasn't something that I played when I was a kid, so maybe that's why it's mm-hmm. I'm not as attached to it. I don't know. I mean, I didn't kind of play it till later on as well, but for me, of, like, this, the core Sunsoft uh, bass soundtracks, mm-hmm. I'm not counting Gimmick. That's sort of in its own category. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that more later, but... Uh, this to me is like the soundtrack of that. Like the, this is mm-hmm. core. It's it's the first one to come out in the final run with this mm-hmm. particular bass sample. But I also just happened to like the music in it the most overall. So um, yeah. one of my favorite tracks is the stage two uh, underground area theme. It's a longer tune, and like NES tracks that take their time are somewhat of a rarity. Yeah, uh, we talked about this before in the Magician episode um, it, about like what the longest NES tunes are, mm-hmm. and this Journey to Silly's track came up uh uh as number eight on that list at three uh three minutes and 24 seconds long before it loops wow (laughs) um and something i really like in this track too is it has these sections where like the melody takes a backseat um to these parts with all these cool drum fills in them uh so let's listen to uh part of that track
So Journey to Silius was originally conceived as a Terminator game, uh, but they lost the rights, you know, the Terminator movie, but they lost the rights to Terminator during the development and then had to make some tweaks to turn it into original IP, which is interesting because, again, like we were just kind of talking about how they're making games based on movies or something that isn't like an original creation. Um, so this game comes off as being an original creation simply because <laughs> they lost the rights oh, yeah. to what they were going to originally, you know, make it as, the, the movie rights. So. Yeah. And there's various things about the game that make that easy to see when you keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, there's one part of the soundtrack, though, that has me wondering if it's an intentional nod to the Terminator theme. Oh? Yeah, yeah. There's the uh, opening theme to Journey to Silius ends with this sort of da-da-da-dun-dun, da-da-da-dun-dun, like, part to it. And uh, mm-hmm. it's not a dead ringer for the Terminator theme, exactly, um, but the Terminator has that sort of... Rhythm to it, and like I wonder if that's the uh, general inspiration here. Yeah, let's let's why don't we listen to that track, the intro to Journey to Silius, and see if it gives off that Terminator vibe. And so going back to the Schmuppulations interview, which we said we were going to uh, do so, we were kind of referencing it earlier. Uh, there's another great quote from Naoki Kodaka uh, regarding Sunsoft's perspective on sound design. Uh, so he said the following, and this is, again, these are his words. <clears throat> we always had the ambition to create sounds that no company had made before. We were the first to experiment with many ideas, following our motto, make the Famicom sing. For example, we experimented with combining triangle waves and noise waves to make a drum sound. Or we'd try using delta-encoded samples for bass. We also create a fake reverb effect through software coding. The Famicom wasn't the kind of anyone-can-do-it programming common with MIDI instruments. The level of craftsmanship in a song was easy to hear. From my perspective as a composer, the sound programmers at Sunsoft were like artisanal craftsmen with awe-inspiring abilities. That's a very great quote, and I think this explains perfectly everything we've heard so far. Like from the much simpler earlier Famicom music to what they're making at this point, like that can only be explained by having people who are actually making an effort to improve, um, mm-hmm. which Kodaka confirms like that's the case. And I think that it's it's worth pointing out, like it's very true, like the fact that it's not you know it is kind of a difficult console to write for, and we know a bad Famicom soundtrack when we hear it, a yeah. bad NES soundtrack when we hear it. So hearing that it is a well-made soundtrack, you appreciate it, you understand it. And like, so him taking that, that seriously and saying, you know, like, uh, as he says, you know, the level of craftsmanship in a song was easy to hear, meaning it, it's bare. There's only five channels that you have the capability of using. And, it, you know, any mistake, any stupid little thing that you put in there that doesn't sound very effective is going to be very apparent to the listener. Yeah. 
And uh, oh, so now I think it would be a good time to explain the Sunsoft base sample and why it's an interesting thing that they pulled off. Because the sample channel on the NES allows you to re-pitch samples, uh, but only downwards. Mm-hmm. So you have a starting sample, and it can be played back at 16 possible speeds, uh, you know, with 15 speeds slower than the original. And of course, a slower speed means a reduced pitch, of course. So, uh, But you run into a small issue with how these available playback speeds don't match up nicely with a chromatic scale. Yeah, I mean, if you start it with a given note, you can't repitch it to just any note on the keyboard. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> exactly. So, like, let's say you start with a C. The next available pitch below gives you a G. And the next beneath that is an E. And beneath that, you're already down to the C octave below. Um, so, like, if you wanted all the notes, like, you know, anything other than what I just said, uh, B, A, F, F sharp, etc., like, you're missing those notes. Yeah, so there's a lot of gaps in there, so there's not a lot of freedom. Right, and here's what it sounds like taking that starting note of C and going down all of the available pitches. So to get a full chromatic scale over several octaves, Sunsoft ingeniously worked around this by starting with five different samples. And by repitching these notes, uh, you can avoid all the gaps you run into with only one sample and get all of the notes. Yeah, and if, uh, if anyone using FamaTracker wants to play around with these samples, uh, just let me know. Because some years back, I ripped these samples from Gremlins 2, um, and I created a FamaTracker instrument with all the samples carefully mapped to the various pitches. So in the tracker space, you can just write in normal notes and not have to go through the headache of uh, tediously transposing things. Oh man, I still tediously transpose things. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, no, I hate that. I have no patience for that. So yeah, it, it, it breaks my brain because what I'm putting there doesn't, it's not the right note. Oh, it, it's so irritating. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> so Sunsoft goes on to use these samples as we mentioned before and all the remaining NES and Famicom games. Those games are Shanghai 2, Gremlins 2, Nantentate Baseball, Hebereke, Super Spy Hunter, Batman Return of the Joker, Mr. Gimmick, Hono no Do Kyuji, Dodge Denpai 1 and 2, and an unreleased game uh, called Pescatore. And uh, there's a lot of great stuff in there. Uh, Let's listen to some examples. Oh man, Gremlins 2, the theme track, that's, yeah, let's listen to that. something i like about that track is you know it's an original track of music that sounds very appropriate uh to the movie music as well like if you adapted Mm -hmm. these melodies to the same like instrumentation used 
uh, in the original Gremlins movie theme, I think that music would fit right in. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Batman Return of the Joker is another great selection from these soundtracks. Uh, Here's the level one theme. Here's a cool track from the first Hono no Do Kyuji Dodge Dan- Danpei, uh, which is composed by Manami Matsume. Uh, she's, you know, she did Mega Man One. She did a bunch of things for Capcom. Um, she, so, um, you know, she kind of was working with Sunsoft and other companies around this time in the early '90s. And here's another track from Pescator, or Pescatore, I have no idea how to say that. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's an unreleased puzzle game um, that thankfully surfaced with a fully working ROM. Thank you. 
Oh, it's funny. Yeah, I actually wrote something about that on my old, now defunct blog, Classical Gaming, uh, that was kind of talking about that. So I'll link that in the notes here. You can see my terrible writing from, like, at this point, five years ago. Oh, cool. No, <laughs> I, I haven't read too much about this game, so I, I got to check that out. So Yeah. Cool. Um, But, like, amidst all of these games, it's a special title. The title we kind of all love, uh, you know, when it comes to this unsolved music. And that's Gimmick, or also known as Mr. Gimmick in Europe. Uh, and it utilized, you know, Sunsoft was actually able to get a sound expansion for this. So an actual proper expansion audio chip. So yeah, Gimmick was the only game to utilize what was called Sunsoft 5B Audio, which added three extra square waves to, uh, to the soundtrack. You know, three extra voices that the NES couldn't normally produce. Uh, so it has a much bigger sound and plays chords, uh, you know, that you couldn't normally have. Yeah, uh, this is probably both of our favorite game soundtrack. This is probably this is mine, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah, me as well. Like you know, I mentioned Journey to Silius before being possibly my favorite game soundtrack. Um, this is right up there with it, though. Uh, so you know, I would say these are my two favorite Sunsoft soundtracks. Um, is it? It's a great soundtrack. There's a lot of character and personality to it. Um, fantastic uh, snare sample, as you heard in that track, like really tight mm-hmm. percussion. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on in it. Yeah, and I, I, you know, there's so much here for this episode that we really feel strongly about doing an episode just on gimmick. So we're uh, like, while it is our favorite game, I think we're going to just kind of gloss over it here because uh, we want to do a proper full-length episode on gimmick in the future. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, I should add that it's definitely my favorite Sunsoft game. No question about that. Oh, it's, actually, like yeah, gameplay. I, gameplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very challenging game. Very it's like very hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's very deceiving. Like it has very cutesy graphics. Looks like kind of Kirby esque. And yeah, we'll talk about this more in the episode about it when we get to it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it is a very, very well made game as well. Yeah. Though. So, mm-hmm. um, so I guess we can follow this up with some of Sunsoft's uh, Game Boy entries, uh, since they have a few more Game Boy and Game Boy Color titles throughout the '90s that wrap up their uh, 8-bit era. Yeah, we played some of Trip World in our Game Boy episode, but let's give it a listen again.
Okay, so Triple is kind of interesting. Has it an odd credit for it in the uh, ending credits where it says the music is done by uh, someone or something called Phase Out? Uh, mm-hmm. It even has like its own font for it. Like they had to draw like the text out, like an image for it, mm-hmm. um, like a logo. Um, then underneath that, it also credits um, Masayuki Iwata, uh, mm-hmm. Sutomo Ishida, and Atsushi Mihiro, names that we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And then uncredited in the game uh, is Manami uh, Matsume, mm-hmm. again the uh, Mega Man One composer. Um, so I don't know if Phase Out like is is her, or if that's like a, a inclusive team. And mm-hmm. you do see the name Phase Out. I think in maybe like one or two later Sunsoft titles. Uh, it's not something you see frequently, so it's weird. It's like they have their own little group or something. And but yeah, I don't know exactly who or what uh, Phase Out is. Yeah, I'll double check on that. Um, I'll see if I can find out more and post it in the notes here. Cool, great. And so Sunsoft also has like a few more Game Boy games. There's a handful of like Looney Tunes games. Um, mm-hmm. But something I find interesting later on is a Game Boy Color game from 1998 called Power Quest, and it has some amazing music. I guess this brings us to the final era of Sunsoft music that we've kind of categorized here. You can think of this as being the 16-bit and beyond era. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff comes from the mid-90s, though you can find their Sega Genesis soundtracks originating uh, in 1990. So, Yeah, the, the first couple of Sega Mega Drive games, which we kind of glossed over, but again, we're coming back to, if we have our chronology right, I guess, would be something called Telltale Mahjong and Telltale Stadium. Um, these are interesting because they're one of a few games that had this uh, that actually used the Mega Modem for online play. Yeah, these were online multiplayer games uh, from 1990, Jeez. if you can believe that. So, and, and Telltale Mahjong actually has a really cool uh, title theme track. That's certainly a very strong entry for their start on the Mega Drive, uh, though we don't know who worked on this or what the story behind it is. Yeah, it's 
like it's weird because some of those games are like kind of especially games that were like modem games there's probably very little information and there's no way to like really go back because i'm sure some of the data you had to actually be connected to something to see it so right that kind of sucks uh so what we believe is our third genesis title uh batman another batman game of course <laughs> has right. a more familiar sound uh which is once again handled by a nobuyuki hara and a, a shinichi seiya Yeah, that, that track is pretty cool, and it has that kind of reverby sound on that square wave lead, uh, mm-hmm. just like in their NES music. And I believe this is because they're using some of the PSG audio, uh, similar to how they would if it was like an NES arrangement. No, yeah, I mean, I imagine that having that experience with working with that kind of audio, especially square waves, lends itself to creating uh, more interesting things in the PSG. I, I mean, even I find when I write uh, Mega Drive slash Genesis music, like, the experience I have in Family Tracker lets me gives me a better idea of what I should do with the PSG. Mm-hmm. I feel like the PSG is really underutilized uh, throughout the Genesis catalog. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah, like it, it's 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 can do some really great stuff. Um, and I feel that like it's funny that they would kind of be heavy handed with it because they kind of probably knew it better or they had utilities they could easily work to kind of make and use the PSG. Yeah. So yeah, this is kind of this is a tangent on Sega Genesis audio, but I guess now would be a good time to bring it up. Like, as you mentioned, like the the PSG audio, what we're talking about is the Sega Genesis has like two sound chips in it, basically. Mm-hmm. There's like the standard FM, like 16-bit sounds and 8-bit samples that you think of. Um, but the Genesis can also play Sega Master System games in it. Mm-hmm. And it has the sound chip, that older 8-bit sound in it as well. And some Sega Genesis soundtracks utilize both. And, yeah. and I th- I think it's a funny thing to point out because like I think some people wanted to distance themselves from that lower quality 8-bit sound. Mm-hmm. But the sort of ironic part is if you go and look at like the highest quality, best sounding Sega Genesis soundtracks that came out, mm-hmm. they almost all – the common thing you're going to see is that they utilize – the PSG audio very they they integrate it very well. They're not afraid to use it. So it's like the higher quality Genesis soundtracks actually rely on embracing the eight bit audio, not avoiding it. I, I mean, it's like you know, even when I just compose for it, it's like having uh, an extra like keyboard or something next to you. You know, like you're thinking of the main FM sound, and then like and I and this is great because this is probably what they were thinking of. You have the main six channels right of FM that you can work with, and then you have something over here on the other side that you can kind of just make little chords with, or make leads and echoes and different things that can augment the FM. And the fact that they've discovered this or used it is really smart. And like you said, the best Genesis. I mean, we're going to have an episode on Genesis at some point. Yeah. But the best Genesis audio definitely goes and draws from that that heritage, brings that back in, and creates a like uses every channel. 
channel. Like, yeah. it's very disappointing. Like, even when in the VRC6 episode, kind of tangent-wise, but we're very disappointed that the, all the VRC6 soundtracks don't use the triangle wave. It's like, you didn't use that channel. Right. You know, so if you use all the channels, you get that full volume, that full ability. And to use them all well, which, you know, Sunsoft is very capable of doing, the Sunsoft team is capable of doing, uh, is, is the hallmark of a great soundtrack. Oh, absolutely. And now, um, fast forwarding a bit to 1992, uh, we have another Sega Genesis soundtrack that we want to quickly highlight, uh, Super Fantasy Zone. some great drum fills in that and like it's just it's really cool sounding yeah i mean it, it's kind of there's two weird things about this game that i just want that are worth noting mm-hmm. so uh this is a uh, kodaka you know kind of writing the music and it's interesting because like this is kind of first of all fantasy zone is what who who's the fantasy zone company it's sega right mm-hmm. so working with this and kind of publishing this so their job was kind of publisher and also kind of like bringing it to the console i guess in this situation yeah so it's it's interesting because godaka here has to also it also draws from uh hiroshi kawaguchi's uh soundtrack to it so some of the songs are kind of covers or remixes and some of them are uh his own kinds of music that he added himself so and, and you can tell like the whole soundtrack is kind of in that fantasy zone kind of like for lack of a better term like latin kind of like upbeat latin percussion kind of feel mm-hmm. brazilian perhaps even um and, and so it's just really interesting to see kodaka have to kind of draw from a style that is that's already there the other weird thing about this game is it was never released in the u.s but it was released in japan and europe ah mm-hmm. I mean, and that's probably because Sega had a bigger hold in Europe, but it, it, I only point that out because there's very few games that I can think of that are released in Japan and Europe, but not in the U.S. Right. So, Gimmick would be another one. Um, that is true, but that's actually interesting, isn't it? Then? Yeah. Uh, so you wonder why it worked out that way. It's very odd with the, with the market, what, you know, what was going on with the market at the time for that to yeah, make I mean, sense and- for Sunsoft. Yeah, and that's that is very fascinating. I wonder if there is like they had a better Europe connection at that time or something because the like the nes in europe was overpriced and it wasn't you know it wasn't the console of choice so that's very interesting yeah it's very wow i didn't even put that together interesting and and so there's gonna be a bunch of stuff we're skipping over we don't have examples lined up from all their sega you know mega drive and genesis soundtracks and a good chunk of it is published works like we said earlier not really handled by their core team anyways so yeah so why don't we just move on to the uh snes slash uh super famicom stuff um, so their first uh, Super Famicom game to come out was uh, Albert Odyssey. Uh, this has a soundtrack by Daiki Kodaka again, and mm-hmm. um, it has some great music. Let's give it a listen.
Yeah, so the next one kind of uh, would be the Super Famicom game, Hebereke's Popoon, uh, which is just, I mean, it's like a weird puzzle game, um, but it has this really crazy track with all these weird vocal samples. track is awesome um yeah i mean they take that even like a step further there's a game over track that's uh composed entirely only of vocal samples (laughs) let's uh give that a listen (laughs) this Uh, will be counting down i guess yeah. yeah So, um, yeah, these are... Oh, is that what they are? Is those numbers counting down? Yeah. No, no, oh, okay, cool. San, yeah. I'll... She, yeah, yeah. I think I, it's hard for me to count backwards in Japanese. <laughs> but, oh. yeah, I, yeah, they are. You know, th- these tracks with the vocal samples are kind of ridiculous. Um, but, again, it does, once again, show Sunsoft trying to put out high-quality audio. Because if you go back to the library of, you know, Super Nintendo, um, you don't hear vocal samples that often. And these, yeah. are, these are pretty high-quality. Like, um Super Metroid opens up with, like, that bit of dialogue at the beginning. Like, it's actually, yeah. like, recorded dialogue. Like, the last Metroid is in captivity or whatever, like, whatever they say. Yeah. The last Metroid is in captivity. The galaxy is at peace. So I, I think to have the soundtrack with like that's really heavy on vocal samples, like, is them trying to do something that sounds high quality. And it, it does stand out, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, in the Super Famicom, you see a bunch of these games that use the characters from Hebereke. From, you know, from the Famicom game. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hebreke was originally a platformer game, sort of loosely, in the, I mean, that had like sort of a Metroidvania kind of layout to it, but, you know, sort of in the same kind of genre as Gimmick and Trip World, where they had like these mm-hmm. cool platformers with cartoony graphics. Uh, on the Super Nintendo, they sort of, they didn't really make any games like that again, unfortunately, but they take the characters from Hebreke and they put them into puzzle games. Uh, there's this game coming up, Sugoi Hebreke, which is like a four-player fighting game those characters mm-hmm. so and, and the reoccurring theme with these characters is like they have a cartoony whimsical style to them uh so you can expect to hear that from the soundtrack so uh here's a track from sugoi uh, hebereke So this hand, this was handled uh, in part by like a couple different teams, uh, including Naoki Kodaka. So it's still Kodaka working on this. But and I'm, I'm looking at the uh, snesmusic.org, uh, the actual dump of here, and also this Hitachi Sakimoto. And uh, Hitachi Sakimoto is known for a lot of games. You probably recognize the name right away. Um, he's the composer for uh, Tactics Ogre, Final Fantasy Tactics, Final Fantasy XII. I mean, Valkyria Chronicles Two. I mean, huge freaking list and his music is pretty uh, you know, like for the most part you'd also you'd know it also i mean he went back to working on some of the turbo graphics stuff as well uh you know and he always worked with uh, uh masaharu iwata 
uh, kind of like they've they're always kind of together. Uh, they did like Magical Chase. Like mm-hmm. I mean, the list is huge of, of like really iconic stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see him on there, and I'm not sure what his involvement is. So right, um, if if it, if he was involved, that's cool. And if he wasn't, please tell me that that's incorrect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting to find out. Um, so another really cool um, Kodaka soundtrack here for the Super Famicom. Uh, there's a sequel to Albert Odyssey. So you have uh, Albert Odyssey 2, Joshin no uh, Taido. And uh, yeah, let's listen to an example from that. Yeah, it's a beautiful track. I, I I really like all of the um, like some of the more like energetic and fast paced Super Nintendo songs is not my style as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of like I think the Sega Genesis sound is better for that. Um, but when you get to like the lush sort of orchestral like ballad type songs, uh, they're mm-hmm. always fantastic. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so from here, I think that's actually the last example we have queued up for the episode. Um, from here, you know, there's a few more games that sort of trickle out over the years, but as we mentioned, things hit a sharp decline right around this time, 95, 96. Uh, you know, if that anecdote, if that story we heard from that interview is correct, I'll link it in the show notes that, um, the Sun Deshi, you know, the parent corporation lost a bunch of money, uh, an investment, like in the golf course in the Palm beach or something like that. Um, so things hit a decline. There are various other titles that come out afterwards, a game like, uh, Astra Superstars for the Sega Saturn. Um, you know, there's a few late 90s arcade releases. Some game called like Shanghai. You know, their Shanghai type uh, game. Shanghai yeah. uh, Mate Kibu Yu. Something like that. And um, other than that, though, it's really... It's kind of sad, actually. There, there's a Sunsoft page. Still up. It's still active. They have an official website. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like in the news about section... It's basically just a little scene of like, oh, we have a couple titles coming out on the Wii uh, Virtual Console. Yeah. So it's like showing like, oh, here's Blaster Master again. So it's kind of like they're not – if you go to their Wikipedia page, it doesn't have like an end date for the company, like a closing of the company. Um, so I guess that means like they're technically still around, but it's they're not producing or developing like they were. It's just sort of a holdout of like – you know, someone has the licensing rights to their to the Sunsoft titles. You know that still is properly held by uh, someone. It seems so. They're not officially dead, but you can really look at like the late '90s as like where things died off. 
Yeah, I mean, especially just kind of like the the you know we're looking at a rapid like especially in the eighties they were kind of pumping out titles like they they got to eleven Famicom games pretty quick, um, you know so that rate just kind of drops off and I mean you know with everything that happened to them you know th- their legacy and their run compared to even some other software companies was great. I oh mean, yeah, and the fact yeah. that this team was together. I mean, really think about this: the team you had Kotaka and these guys still working together. You know, more than ten years, like twelve years, like and working on Nintendo music together for more than ten years. So, and you can see, like, when we, if you look at that Smuffulations interview, that Kotaka has nothing but glowing things uh, that he remembers about that time, uh, and how everyone was so great, and how it was just a a great working environment. And you know, that kind of working environment produced for us some of the greatest NES soundtracks of all time. Yeah, some of the best video game soundtracks of all time. Yeah, yeah, not even just NES, video games in general. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, it's it's sad again that the company died off. I always want to see more games along the lines of gimmick and stuff like that because mm-hmm. I think those really have potential. Um, some yeah. of the way those games play out, they almost feel a little bit more like like a modern indie perspective. Like if someone made a cool modern eight bit game, like I yeah. feel like that's like if they were ahead of their time in in some ways. Um, Trip World Absolutely. on the Game Boy, like is a game where enemies can't hurt you by bumping into them; they have to attack you. Um, which is like a rare quality for a platformer and there's just really cool sprite designs and you know so i always want to see more of that but you know nonetheless sunsoft had a great run and provided us with awesome awesome music yeah absolutely um so yeah that about wraps up the main chunk of the episode let's move on to comments and listener feedback Oh, one thing I want to actually open up with here, though, is uh, our friend Paul, who uh, joined us on the Game Boy episode, recently uh, completed this like online course that you can take uh, to learn how to make Game Boy music. Um, so we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, it's uh, on this website, soundfly.com, and uh, it's called Chiptune Crash Course, Getting Started with Chip Music. Um, so yeah, it, it has this whole online course on how to do it. So if it's something you're interested in, definitely check it out. Um, Paul is a very he's a very like-minded uh, musician. Like he sort of um, takes perspective of uh, a musician who wants to dig into these uh, tools. So uh, it's easy to understand if uh, you know sort of like tech-heavy manuals uh, are not your thing as much. So okay, so um, something really cool that was sent to me uh, that I wish I'd known about sooner, so we could have mentioned it in our Castlevania or VRC six episode. Um, because there's this release um, by an old friend of mine, Mike, who goes by the handle of Kirby Pufosia online. Um, he's also known, he plays like guitar in Metroid Metal. Um, oh, okay. And he did this really really cool release uh, called CV3 No Densetsu or whatever. <laughs> I guess I guess the title. <laughs> That's awesome. And so what this is, it's really cool. It's uh it's a mix down of the American Castlevania 3 uh, NES soundtrack. Um, with the Japanese uh, VRC6 version. Because um, something we pointed out in that episode is, you know, while most people prefer the VRC6 Japanese soundtrack, um, you know, I was a little critical of the sound where sometimes I think it gets a little too muddy. Uh, the sawtooth wave is like a little too loud in the mix. Um, so he very consciously and carefully and tediously, you know, lined up all of the sound channels side by side in the NES and Japanese version and very carefully um, dropped certain voices out, brought certain voices up. I mean, it's, it's very carefully mixed and mastered. Um, you know, I'll read here. He has the whole thing up on Bandcamp. Uh, band we'll link it in, uh, in the show notes so you can give it a listen. 
So as he puts it in his own words, um, I got tired of deciding between the US and Japanese versions of the soundtrack, so I made one uh, using the bones of both. Um, this is a result of several hundreds of hours staring at a computer screen, blasting NES music into my ears, adjusting sliders, cutting and pasting, drooling, and sending the results out to countless people to tell me what sounds bad because this album made me deaf. <laughs> and it's, it's really good. You know, I, I've been critical before of um, some like YouTube uploads where people mess with the sound where they, you know, they give the NES soundtrack stereo sound and it just kind of like they add reverb and I feel like it doesn't sound as good when you, you're not taking the original like audio for what it is. Um, but this is this is a special project in its own right, and it's so well done that listening to it now, I feel like it's sort of the definitive way to listen to Castlevania three. I'll go so far to say that, like, um, if you're a big fan of Castlevania soundtrack soundtracks, you absolutely owe it to yourself to listen to his version of Castlevania three. He did it every song in the soundtrack. It sounds so, um, we'll yeah. play for a second here. It sounds So, kind of looking at the comments from our Game Boy episode, one thing that kind of came up and I thought was really funny is, like, a little bit of arguments or just kind of comments about Pokemon in general. Um, you oh, know, nice. with Nes- Yeah, I mean, Nestogen says, uh, yep, I've never understood the huge Pokemon's obsession. You're not alone. Uh, but then uh, Lemon Child jumps in saying, but the Pokemon soundtracks are so inventive. So, it's funny seeing the different perspectives on that. Of course, yeah, I mean, they're very popular soundtracks that... Um, have both fans and detractors alike so so as i mentioned before i've been playing pokemon yellow uh and the virtual console version for 3ds not the original and some of the music is just like really like it's not great it's not like super inventive i guess um but it kind of gets the job done and like again like i guess one of your criticisms of it is that it doesn't have uh, a lot of drums in it or you know etc etc yeah um you know they don't use the noise channel very well and like yeah it's, it's kind of very basic and I think like the even the wave channel sound they use for some of the tracks isn't like particularly great, um, but it's I don't know I've always I kind of grew up with Pokemon even though I didn't I was like older when it came out but I still played a lot in, when I was in high school, um, and so I guess a, a little nostalgia plays in there like I can kind of forgive some of the uh, the not so great music. Um, it's funny because like uh, I was just thinking about this and I was posting about it on my Twitter account, but. The remakes of these, Fire Red and Leaf Green, have you ever heard the soundtracks for these? Uh, I haven't, actually. So, uh, Go Ichinose is the person who is uh, tasked to um, take these soundtracks and bring them up to Game Boy Advance standards. Um, They're unbelievably weird. Huh. Oh, weird. (laughs) They're, like, absolutely insane um, in terms of using samples and just kind of going there. So, it, like, takes takes that soundtrack and reimagines it in such a way that's so, like... I know this is a huge tangent, but I, I just wanted to bring it up because like mm-hmm. people are arguing about it, and like it reimagines it in a way that's kind of like makes you appreciate the original more because it's you, you can kind of it forces you to fill in the gaps, I guess, for lack of a better term. I'll link I'll link the one in particular, which is versus the uh, champion. Uh, the champion version of it is just absolutely bonkers in Fire Red. It is just huh. bizarre, bizarre beyond comparison. 
Um, so, like, there, there are some good Pokemon... In other words, there are some pretty good Pokemon tracks. I don't think the original games had very good soundtracks, though, basically. Uh, I mean, I did like that weird, like, the spooky Lavender Town track you guys oh, shared, yeah, shared yeah. with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. speaking of which, uh, Carl Germanovich in the comments uh, says... My uncle works at Nintendo and can confirm <laughs> Lavender Town uh, Syndrome is real. Uh, he had to work a lot of late nights because of that. Lots of kids died. Rest in peace. So sad. I cry every time. So, <laughs> I mean, the urban legend surrounding that is so weird. I mean, it literally does, like, uh, the original, uh, the, the red and green version actually does, like, if you listen to it, hurt your ears. I don't know what it is and why they did what they did. But it is just so grating. It is slower. It's got these like really bad wavetable sounds that are just like, why would you do this? And it, and it fits. I mean, you know, so no, no wonder there's kind of like an urban legend around it, I guess. Mm-hmm. So uh, next comment comes from Alberto Gonzalez. Because um, we were in, the, in that episode mentioning whether or not the Game Gear had its stereo audio used. Uh, and he left a comment saying that he thinks he used it in a track or two of the uh, Smurfs soundtrack. Oh, okay. So that's cool. So it's not like totally unused, but it is, um, as you'd mentioned though, like you weren't even sure if it had stereo audio because it was very, very, very. I mean, used. I owned a Game yeah. Gear and I wasn't aware that it had stereo audio. Like yeah. I probably have to plug it in right now and then I probably plug in Sonic and be like, oh, it did. But it wasn't like I knew that Game Boy did. I like right. certain, it definitely takes advantage of that. So yeah, I mean, yeah, there's Game Boy soundtracks that go crazy with the stereo effects. <laughs> and I've never heard anything like that from a Game Gear soundtrack. So yeah. So our next comment comes from Boy Meets Robot, uh, and they say, uh, One underused feature you didn't mention is the Game Boy has a built-in mixer that allows you to set the overall volume output to a a value of 0 through 7 and lets you control the left and right channel's volume independently. Ah, yeah, because we were talking about the finicky volume uh, control on the Game Boy, and that Mm -hmm. is a good thing to include in there. So, yeah. Um, He also says that programming fade-in envelopes was the worst because the volume will automatically increase to... Uh, the maximum vo- uh, value so you have mm-hmm. to send another envelope uh, command to hold the volume um, because getting the timing right on all of that is a guesswork uh, and the annoying clicks are inevitable and I think Alberto Gonzalez mentioned something like that um, when I talked to him it's about uh, that sort of guesswork involved it's like you have to get the timing right mm-hmm. um, to avoid clicks or jumps in the volume to like get, oh, that, yeah. get the smooth uh, volume envelope that you want mm-hmm. Yeah, and 100 Greek responds uh, to that comment by saying, this is the problem with the SID chip ADSR envelope as well. It always has to reach peak volume before a decay period begins. Ah, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that about the SID. Yeah, I didn't, so. I didn't know that either. I'm not too familiar with the SID chip, really. Yeah, neither am I, and um, it, that's something we're going to definitely do good research on before we talk about it, because I don't want to uh, talk about C64 music without having that like really firmly nailed down. So. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Oh, so uh, next comment comes from I'm a Trackman, and he says, Interesting bit of knowledge, Shantae and Project S11 actually had their soundtracks composed in a tracker. Uh, this one to be exact, and he links it's uh, called Game Boy Tracker. Uh, the author even includes the replay routines and instructions for how to include a song uh, in your own game or demo. That's crazy, because like, I guess you start to get to the point for some of these later Game Boy and Game Boy Color games, like, you know, in the, the chronology, where you know, trackers could just be used. And tools were, you know, think about, like, what tools were in 1991 versus 1999, the huge leap forward in technology we've had. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, like, it, 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 you can only imagine how much it would be easier to, like, kind of move and use, basically just use your PC to put the stuff together, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever coding that you'd use. 
Oh, yeah, we also have, uh, I just want to point out this comment, too, that's kind of at the top here, by Skunk Rocker, and they just say, you know, no N- Little Nicky, surprising. Yeah, and this is, uh, so Little Nicky, Steve, have, are you familiar with the Game Boy Color game Little Nicky? I am not at all. <laughs> ne- neither was I, which is why we didn't talk about it in the episode, because if we did, we definitely absolutely would have. Um, like, mm-hmm. holy crap, it is a weird example of Game Boy sound design. It actually has the samples in there. Uh, used in the music, which we we couldn't think or find any other examples of that mm-hmm. before we recorded the episode. Uh, it has like guitar samples in it. Oh, weird. Um, and it, it sounds really good though. And there's a lot of cool sound design stuff in it. So, uh, like little Nikki, like somehow I don't know if later on down the road we might do um, a sort of like Game Boy follow up episode, um, just to sort of talk more about like some of the weird extraneous stuff. Um, that is something that. Uh, I would like to explore more because it, it sounds really great. So, so, so wait, wait, let me get this straight. This is Little Nicky, like based on the movie Little Nicky. Like it's an Adam Sandler video game. Is that what we're talking about here? Uh, you know, I didn't even look up the history of this game. So I, is that what that is? Uh, let me see right here. Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, it's this Adam Sandler game. on the cover. Oh my God. Yes. This looks. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> oh man. Are you kidding me? Okay. Developed by digital eclipse publisher. Ubisoft came out in December, 2000 for the game boy color. Um, it actually is decent. Well, EGM really liked it. Uh, is EGM owned by like, you know, <laughs> who owns EGM that they gave it an 8.5 out of 10. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Man. Yeah. So apparently just this is Adam Sandler game boy color game with uh, phenomenal sound design. So it, 19 levels featuring 14 platforming levels and five mini games based on events from the film. Wow. It sounds, it sounds absolutely terrible, but this it's, is kinda, it, I, which would you rather play this or the NSYNC game though? <laughs> this actually looks like more of a real game. So I, I would definitely <laughs> rather play this than the NSYNC game. Oh man. <laughs> um, yeah. Wow. All right, so uh, we have a couple things here from Hunter Retro Geek, and the first is a kind of a correction. And yes, we're absolutely wrong. the the six five uh, the six five zero two was Moss Technology, it wasn't Motorola. So yeah, uh, thanks for keeping us honest. <laughs> oh, I credited what the NES's CPU. I said it was a Mo- Motorola chip. Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 six five zero two is Mo- uh, MOS or Moss Technology. Is oh, it, okay. It, is it MOS or MOS? If someone could give me, let me know that. I've never actually yeah. had to say that out loud. Yeah. So if, if is it MOS MOS? I mean, if everything's capital, it could just yeah. be. But oh yeah, yeah me, just, it, and it's funny too because I thought it. I still thought it was Motorola the whole time. So it's like I definitely mm-hmm. made that mistake though. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Motorola did this. The, this it was the sixty eight hundred and then the sixty eight thousand. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I got the got the my M's uh, mixed up. I suppose so. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, so uh, I'm a Trackman also shared something really cool with me that I wish I knew about before doing the Game Boy episode. Um, so there's a way to import in Famitracker like NSF files, like Nintendo Music, where it doesn't come mm-hmm. out neatly like kind of like a she- like sheet music in a way, you know, like mm-hmm. you'd expect in the tracker space. Um, it's a lot more like it has to play things back real quickly to handle all of the sounds in there. Um, but nonetheless, someone made a version where it can import uh, it can import Game Boy music. And the way it does that is it uses the uh, Namco sound expansion to handle the Game Boy's wavetable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, like, it emulates it pretty close to perfectly because uh, you can have the same parameters in the Namco wavetable. You can have like the same bit depth and amount of steps. So the waves will sound just like the Game Boy waves. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's like you can look at all the waveforms used in Game Boy soundtracks uh, by importing them into Famitracker. I have no idea that was a thing. 
Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's really cool to see that and be able to play around with that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, I imported some uh, Alberto Gonzalez music, and it all came out pretty accurate. There was uh, like some cases where there's vibrato put onto a wave channel voice, and like it didn't know how to do that correctly. It like sort of jumped in pitches instead of doing a smooth pitch bend. Mm-hmm. But I would say it was like ninety percent accurate. And of course, yeah. like noise on the Game Boy is different than noise on the NES. So I think they made an algorithm to like approximate it. You know, like these pitches are matched th- to map to this pitch. Uh, etc. You know of the noise, um, but it, it works very well. Like, it, maybe some super complex stuff it can't import, but um, a lot of stuff it can. So, well, yeah, and there's like a lot of other comments here. I, we really appreciate all the comments. Uh, obviously, we can't get to all of them, and we try to get to you know as many as we can. Actually, just individually using our own SoundCloud accounts. So this was the most commented episode we've ever done, the Game Boy episode. And yeah, your feedback is great, and you know, tell you know having a good time in the comments is great too. So Absolutely. thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you everyone for like your feedback and participation. Um, it makes it, it's what I, it's something I love doing about this podcast is mm-hmm. after we get an episode up and put it out there, uh, like I'm looking forward to seeing what people say. Um, yeah. If their personal experiences, if they have any input, like again, I did not know about little Nikki on the Game Boy Color. And um, it's something that like would have been in the episode if we knew about it. So yeah. um, so being able, you know, drawing from the wealth of knowledge that our lis- listeners have is uh, is amazing. So um, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, thanks a lot. So next up is name that game. Uh, let's listen to the track from the previous episode. And that was guessed correctly by Vera Lovely, and that was Mega Man 5 for Game Boy. Yeah, that was a fun track to pick. You know, I sort of figured the Mega Man soundtracks are well-known overall, but Mm -hmm. you get to any of the original content on the Game Boy, you know, stuff that isn't ports of the NES music, uh, and that stuff's definitely going to be more obscure. So I was wondering, like, how long it would take for someone to recognize it, but um, I think Vera Lovely got it, like, within hours of the episode going up, so... Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm telling you, man, we're going to FM Towns pretty soon. Marty, (laughs) Cassio, Lupi, it's coming. It's coming, guys. (laughs) Cool, so uh, let's listen to uh, this week's mystery track. All right, so good luck, everyone, with that track, and see if you can name that game. So I guess now uh, we're kind of wrapping up here. I guess it's time for a song of the week. Do we have one? Yeah, I picked a track here from Albert Odyssey. It's a Sunsoft's uh, second Super Famicom soundtrack composed by Naoki Kodaka. Um, it just has another cool one of those like ballady sort of Super Nintendo tracks. Um, it's called In a Strange New World. Um, so yeah, thanks for checking it out, and thank you for listening to Retro Game Audio.